Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, an interview format podcast where I, your host, Mark Decano, talk to estimable figures of standing in the comedy community in a tete-a-tete, not unlike the Frost Nixon interviews, but without the insight, gravitas, or ideally, inadvertent admissions of guilt. I love talking to the people in comedy about comedy, and if you like to hear what they have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. Thank you. My guest this episode is a man of many hats, with an enviable CV. You've seen him on television, you've heard him on the radio, and you've read him in the newspapers. As well as being a guest and presenter, he's a mental health campaigner and best-selling author. But I know him best as award-winning stand-up comedian, Dave Chawner. Hey mate, can you hear me alright? I can. Hi, how are you doing? Perfect. Yes, wait a second. Yeah, all good, Tom. Thanks for joining me, I really appreciate it. Not at all. If you're happy and you're ready, we'll jump in. Great. So tell me about comedy growing up. Was it an early influence on you? Absolutely not. I like to be honest, until very late. I don't know about you, but I I didn't really know stand up was a thing. And I, it's mm. odd that you, you ask that because I've been I've been trying to make sense of this because I knew that comedians were a thing, but I didn't realize it was a thing in and of itself. I always thought that like, you were an <laughs> actor and and if you if you got the odd chuckle, then up oh, you're an actor and a comedian. And <laughs> I think the first time I ever became properly aware of stand up was um, I remember I remember at a house party people really used to like Lee Evans, and I was at one house mm. party and it was on in a, another room. But it was the real one that I kind of like sort of say now is I remember one of my mates came to me in the playground. Um, and he was a, he was a mate, but he was like more of an acquaintance. It's really odd. Mm. And Carter <laughs> came up to me and he went, uh, "Mate, have you heard of Peter Kay?" And I was like, "I I, I don't know who that is. What that is? What you're on about?" Um, and he was like, "I've just watched this DVD. It's right up your street. I think you'd love it." So some family friends came over, and there were the four of us, and we watched it. And I loved it. And we, we watched it from start to finish. Yeah. And then this was in the days of videos. And we loved it so much that we rewound it and watched the whole thing straight through again. <laughs> and it was only really when I went to university that I ever went to my first comedy club. Yeah. So in terms of like stand up as a media, I was very unaware. I didn't know that it was a thing. But I think in terms of like, habitual kind of humor my dad was always the joker my dad always liked to tell beautifully dad jokes (laughs) yeah i don't think in my entire life i ever heard my dad say not too bad he would always answer with not three bad and that's the kind (laughs) of level that we're talking at which is really yeah classic dad my dad was the same i know that story yeah How did your comedy career begin? Because it, it, that kind of nicely leads straight on because I, I suppose I went to university and I, I went to this comedy club and it was like three quid and it was on every two weeks and I'd never been before. Mm. And I went and I I just loved it. And, and I think the thing that really got me about going to a stand-up club was there was the excitement and the enjoyment and the preparation before like people seem to enjoy with club nights of you might go to someone's house you might pick someone up on the way or have a pint before and you'd get there the doors would open at seven you'd have a pint you'd have a chat mm. and then the first act would go on and the thing that i loved about it was it was such an easy night because there's always something to talk about because you talk about looking forward to it then you talk about the first act then you talk about the second act and then the headliner comes on and then when you <laughs> finished and the thing that really lasted with me was that when the gig had finished everything felt manageable everything felt doable achievable nothing felt scary mm. and i think for a sort of quite an anxiousy sort of person i just loved that opportunity everything sort of felt silly and i became addicted to this comedy club and i i started bringing more and more mates and it was only when i um sort of i i it came to new year's eve and i thought you know what i'd love to give this a go mm. so i did a an open mic night and it was in my university halls of residence and i lived with 20 people so that was an audience in and of itself (laughs) so we went down there and the first gig was really lovely and it went really well as as 
is always the case of like the first one goes up and then the next one was with su- supporting mm-hmm. Kerry Godleyman who was doing an Edinburgh hour and it was a genuine death because I, <laughs> I didn't know how comedy worked. I wrote a whole new 15 minute bit, mm. but without jokes, it was just a story. And it was a sort of story that if you knew me in the pub might get a chuckle, but if you didn't know me, you'd be like, why are you telling me this and (laughs) harry godleyman had a terrible death because someone like vomited in a wine bucket while she was on stage and it was just it was hell on toes but (laughs) it took me so long to to actually kind of realize that there's a whole industry and a whole sort of way of doing things Mm. behind comedy that i think is so interesting yeah you describe yourself there as a as an anxiousy person. Mm. How far does anxiety impact uh, not only how you go out on stage, but also the material that you write? I think that's a great question, and I think the thing that I'm starting to realise is that anxiety is a real catch-all term for like so many different things. Mm. Because I'm I'm very very socially anxious, but I don't think in your normal kind of way. Like a lot of people seem to understand social anxiety as a a worry to go up and talk to people. And of course, Mm. everybody has that and I have that, but my social anxiety is either being boring or getting kind of locked in a conversation that I kind of can't get out of. And I, I, I feel really trapped like that and so i think that really influences like when i'm doing stand-up i Mm. get if i'm nervous about a gig i always used to say i'd never get nervous before i go on stage but yet again i realized that like actually my nerves don't manifest in i'm shaking and pacing Mm. i just become obsessive about times and be like well i was meant to be on at 10 past eight it's now 11 minutes past eight what's going on and i become almost quite autistic about like yeah but the, the time's gone, they're overrunning, what's going on, yeah. sort of thing. Um, and it takes quite a lot, and it's something that I'm really, really trying to focus on. It takes a lot for me to feel comfortable and settled on stage. Mm. And I think that kind of does influence your sort of performing style in the sense that sometimes if they have a kind of angsty audience and they like that, yeah. they like the kind of, oh, yeah, like kind of almost Eddie Izzard style of, yeah, and there's words, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas I, I love that kind of more Irish uh, sense of being really calm and cool and collected and like yeah. yeah you know you might not have laughed at that there's more coming sort of thing <laughs> and it is something i'm really trying to work on at the moment of yeah just being more settled i suppose yeah that first gig then um was it everything that you expected from comedy was there anything that surprised you that's a really good question i I don't know what I expected. And because Mm. it was an open mic, it wasn't like a proper comedy club club. Mm. So I think it was, um, I think it was different to kind of what I expected. And I think, I think this is the thing as I go more and more into comedy, I kind of realize it's less and less what I expected. (laughs) I remember seeing Dara Brian when I was a kid mm. and uh, in well, like not a kid, but when I was at university, some of my mates pulled together and they brought me tickets to see him in Birmingham because mm. like I was sort of originally from Birmingham. And um, I remember thinking as we're going up on the train, I bet you Dara's like so excited to be in Birmingham and is pacing in the green room now. And I bet he's really nervous. And as I go on, like, I realized he's done another 139 other dates. He probably doesn't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like he obviously wants to do a good gig, but I don't think he's sweating it like he is when he's like being recorded or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and that kind of glitz and glamour and kind of vaudevilleness of like stuff. Then when you do a sort of spiky mic gig in the, the middle of Northampton, you're like, it's it's not all cocaine and spotlight. So I think it's the, the sort of like uh, the sort of the, the living of it. I think is very different. But I think 
that first particular gig, it's hard to say because I literally had no expectations. And one thing, again, linking back into that anxiety thing, one of the things I still find so difficult to do is to let people laugh. Hmm. And there are so many acts that are absolutely fantastic of it. You watch people like uh, Jamali Maddox. You watch people like Ian Stone. You watch people like, um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think Laura Lex is quite good at it as well. But the Adam Rowe, again, very good at or just standing there mm. and letting the the laughter kind of wash over them. And I'm not very good at that. And the problem is <laughs> once you start training an audience out of laughing, then they're kind of like, well, yeah, I'm just going to stop. <laughs> um, so I, I think that kind of anxiety meant that I wasn't, I wasn't like in the moment enjoying it. I was just constantly thinking, what am I saying next? What am I saying next? What am I saying next? Which is such a, a weird thing that I never even thought about. <laughs> Did you know when you started out the kind of comedian that you wanted to be, whether it would be like observational or storytelling? You, men you mentioned about doing a 15 minute story with few laughs. Did you want to be a storyteller? Y you know what? That's a really interesting question because I think more the comedian that I wanted to be was more about being off stage rather than on stage. And mm. I think that's part of my upbringing and part of my insecurity that I always wanted to be humble. I never wanted to get egotistical. And I think that's mm. that's something that I really struggle with today. And I was more kind of that more influenced me more than anything else. And I think part of because that I really like that kind of guy in a pub style comedy i love storytelling mm. i love using comedy to talk about difficult and weird topics yeah. and as i've kind of got into it more and more the person that i've wanted to be on stage has changed and i definitely think in those early days i certainly wanted to be a kind of peter k kind of daro brian mm. style and then as comedy styles have changed over time, I was talking about this the only the other day. And I find it really funny because when I started, Peter Kay was the guy that everyone was mm. trying to be. And then it switched to Russell yeah. Kane was the person that everyone was trying to be. And then it switched to Stuart Lee <laughs> that everyone was trying to be. And now it's kind of going through a phase of sort of, James Acaster is the one that everyone <laughs> is trying to be. And it's hard not to get influenced by that. But I think the people that I really admire the most are ones that do weird shows talking about odd things. Like That's one of the things that I love about Richard Herring is that you, you can go to a gig and actually learn. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing for me of, of actually going... And I think it also gives the comedy another lifeline because it's just a pub conversation. Did you know that, you know, <laughs> giraffes can't swallow or whatever it is? <laughs> That's an interesting point you bring up. And you talk about um, wanting to talk about the difficult and weird topics. Uh, your shows are educational. Your, your hours, you've done many ed hours now, uh, Edinburgh. Um, your first one, of course, normally abnormal. Yeah. On the theme of your own anorexia journey. Was that was that a story that you wanted to tell first and foremost? Or did you think I want to write an hour and I don't know what it's going to be about yet? A hundred percent. I think the I think the talking about the anorexia came before the jokes. And <laughs> I think a lot of people that saw that show would go, the talking about the anorexia came definitely before the jokes. And <laughs> I I I think it was that was a real that show took a lot of writing and was very flawed. But somebody else that you had on other podcasts, which other listeners uh, should definitely go and check out, was that was all done with Robin Perkins. Yes. And uh, Robin was really great to push me because the first iterations of that show were very much, I want to talk about anorexia. What jokes can we try and shoehorn in there? And <laughs> it was like lots of one-liners. And I think the real challenge about that show was actually trying to... Um, trying to make a topic that I wanted to talk about, trying to use storytelling humor in order to 
do that. And the irony is that's not the show that I like the most. It's not the one that I'm proudest of, mm. yet it is the one that I'm always still trying to perfect because for me, I always, my raison d'etre is always to talk about mental health in comedy. Mm. And if I could be known for one thing, if it could be to be the mental health stand-up guy, that I, I would die a happy man. That is my, that that's what I want to do. It's not really fame. It's not fortune. And, and don't get me wrong, like, I, I ain't going to turn those things down. But, um, <laughs> but I'm not chasing fair. I genuinely, if I could be known a small circle as the guy that talks about mental health on stage, I'd be, I'd be very happy with that. Yeah. Off the back of that, you gave a TED talk um, about the subject, and also you're now a best-selling author with your book "Way to Expectations." Basically, again, tackling the same subject. You're a mental health campaigner. You also you're a writer for newspapers, magazines, guest, and presenter on TV and radio. I mean, you talk about not wanting to be uh, egotistical. <laughs> you are at the forefront of all of these uh, all of these things. Where do you see yourself? Where do you sit? Are you a comedian who does? Um, campaigning are you a mental health campaigner who is also a writer I, th I think that's really interesting because I think there's two answers to that mm. one is that is something I still really struggle with that unfortunately in this game you do have to self-promote and mm. in this game you do have to do those things and I still get really queasy and uncomfortable about having to do that mm. um, so I think that's where I kind of sort of sit on that stuff is it is really difficult to sort of do that but i also think with fame fame is chasing a rainbow and it's really interesting that i'm so so lucky mm. to now be um and i'm so it's not that i'm proud of this but like i, I i'm a, a resident compare at a club called top secret mm -hmm. which i just love it's like the uk's highest rated comedy club and when if, if I could have gone back to my former self and said, you, you will be hosting there three times a week. And I'd be like, what? That's I'm so But you know, like, life doesn't happen like that. And it's really interesting to always look for what you've not got rather than what you mm. have. And it, based on a conversation with a wonderful comedian, Robin Morgan, mm. only the other day, he was sort of talking about how gratitude is really, really important. I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I think as someone who wants to be seen as the, you know, the mental health comic, mm. I also think part of that and something that I think that I have kind of let slide is working on my own mental health. Mm. And I think that's definitely something that I've, I've had to sort of focus on, you know, for the past sort of the past three or four months there's been a, a couple of things you're like yeah you you got to focus on that you got to improve that mm. rather than just trying to get gigs and trying to get cash through the door yeah well one of the biggest challenges to people's mental health in recent years obviously covid how did you go from being a, a successful comedian to being in isolation yeah you, you know what like covid was so weird mm. For me, so like, so I had a weird, everyone had a weird lockdown, but um, I used to do traffic and travel for like, like BBC local radio and stuff, which subsequently best, best job and job in the world. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's amazing to be on like BBC Cambridge going, oh yeah, well, there's, there's a rat on the road in Faversham or whatever <laughs> it is. Um, but I I was doing that, I remember very distinctly, I was doing that on a Saturday from home. Mm. And it was Saturday at the end of uh, March. And uh, I got a call off my parents, which seemed really odd. And uh, my dad called me up and said, look, it's, it's nothing to be worried about. But last night I I had uh, <clears throat> I had a hypo and we had to call an ambulance. Uh, and I was like, that's really odd because my dad's been diabetic for years and he's so good at managing it. Mm. Um, and that was on the Saturday lunchtime. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God. And he was, like, really downplaying it. It's like, look, these things happen. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll have to go get checked out. The doctor absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. Just thought I'd tell you. And I was like, oh, okay. And then 
on the Sunday night, mm. I called him to just sort of check in yeah. and he was fine and we were having a chat. And then six hours later, I got a phone call saying, dad's dead. And it was so quick. Mm. Um, and and it, that really blew us apart. So actually the first part of lockdown when people were really struggling and adjusting Unfortunately, I had to get loads of trains up and down the country because my mum fell to pieces. So I had to try and help, try and arrange the funeral, arrange their finances, mm. arrange everything really. So I was constantly on trains up and down, which in itself was kind of weird. Mm. But I, it meant that I forwent that initial, oh, isn't this odd? Isn't this crazy? And I wasn't really thinking about gigs. So it took me quite a while to let it all sink in mm. and when it eventually did i remember thinking i need routine and i remember going um going for like regular walks like two or three times a day when you're allowed to and i thought like, i just need to make this i need to make this time work so i started to create a comedy course aimed at people with mental health problems to teach them stand-up comedy as a method of recovery to help build their confidence, build their communication, build that connection with other people and combat loneliness. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge undertaking and ended up getting taken up by a university that I'm currently working with. And that kept me busy and that kept me sane, mm. I think. So I, I feel like on a sort of less personal note, I actually made the most of it as much as I could. And also to be honest, Mark, I, that Christmas as well, I, I loved doing because people didn't know what to do. So loads of people were doing zoom gigs for Christmas and it was amazing because <laughs> you could just, if anyone started shouting out, you could just mute them. And I was like, <laughs> why can we not do this in comedy clubs? This is great. I did, I did four corporates in one day and I was like, I would never do that in normal life. So I actually quite, I actually didn't mind zoom gigs. I thought it was all right. Great for me. <laughs> So that's an interesting point. Um, so with the passing of your dad, sorry about that, my sympathies, at what point does that or has that become a subject for comedy? Brilliant question. The answer was I was very staunch. Absolutely not. Mm. And then the last show that I did actually ended up talking about dad dying. Mm. Very hack in comedy, the dead dad show. <laughs> Um, but but I think it was interesting because I learned from that first show that actually it became a, a tag on rather than a topic in and of itself. And the show that I ended up talking about my dad was because, and it's still absolutely true, was that... Um, I later found out that the uh, I, I, it the show was all kind of essentially based on the last conversation that I had with him, mm. and the last conversation that I had with Dad was um, something you need to know. Is a year previous, we'd been on this app called Borrow My Doggy, and Easter is a big thing for our family, and we'd taken this dog that we were looking after up to my parents and we had the best Easter ever and it was incredible and it was just amazing, was genuinely brilliant. And the last conversation I had with dad was I, because it was on that Sunday and I didn't know he was going to die. I didn't know he was ill. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. We didn't realize he wasn't displaying, like he wasn't labored breathing. He'd cough every now and then, but I think he was hiding how bad it was quite a lot. Mm. And I was just chatting to him and I was like, oh, he's not very chatty. And I was complaining that we couldn't do Easter and I was complaining that we couldn't do this. And he honestly said, you know what? I don't think it matters because last year when you brought Rocket, the dog up with uh, to, to me and your mom, mm. that was the best Easter I've ever had. Mm. And I don't think you could ever beat that. And that was the last kind of conversation I had with him. And that became a kind of uh, uh an inspiration point to be like oh dogs are better than humans that's quite a good example of how dogs are better than humans and how dogs can bring you closer to humans yeah. but i haven't done a show about my dad dying per se and i don't think that i ever would because i genuinely don't but i don't think anything's off limit for comedy but the one thing that really does annoy me is that 
people in my family wanted to do certain things at the funeral because they thought it would be funny. Yeah. And although dad was a joker, although dad was a very funny person, I'm like, this ain't a gig. Yeah. This is a funeral. And it almost frustrates me a little bit when people try to do jokey things at funerals to be all kooky. And I'm like, I, I don't want that. I, I want a funeral. I want to be able to bury and remember my dad. If I want a knock, knock joke, I'll pull a fucking cracker. I don't think funerals are, are places that should be hilarious. Yeah. A moment ago, you said about uh, doing Zoom and muting the audience. Um, so as a, as a compare, how do you deal with uh, audience feedback, let's call it? I, you know what, like... In in terms of like feedback, I think I always say this: heckles are so much rarer than people think. Mm. Because um, and also you've got to bear in mind as well a little view behind the curtain. You've really got to bear in mind that a most heckles are trying to help. Most heckles come at a stage where people are feeling a little bit awkward and they're trying to create something funny. And actually, mm. some of the time, you can get so much out of heckle to get the gig back on track but if it is malicious if it is personal which you know doesn't happen that often but sometimes can you've got to bear in mind that the comic is always going to be on the winning foot because the comic is the one that is amplified the comic is the one that is in the spotlight the comic is the one that's on stage and it takes a lot of time and experience to kind of realize that sometimes you can just kind of wait that out and let somebody um kind of have enough rope to hang themselves for me for me in terms of audience feedback during a gig (laughs) the worst the worst thing by far is just chatting to your mate and what's almost sometimes worse is i did a gig I did a Saturday night gig and they were so pissed up. And there were these people from Newcastle who kept on saying, oh, we go to the stand all the time. We completely understand comedy. And I hate to say it, but they really didn't because after every single joke, after every single story or routine, they would then go, hey, that's like Brenda does, isn't it? Oh, do you remember when Brenda did that? And it, it's not malicious, but it killed the gig because everyone around them was getting annoyed. Yeah. All the comics were going, sorry, what's going on over there? And to me, that's a thousand times worse than someone just shouting out, yeah, your mom, you know? <laughs> mentioning about um anxiety you talked about dealing with challenging topics and things like this where do you feel actually more comfortable in yourself being an mc or doing your challenging material 100 percent mc love being an mc mm. like i would which is kind of rare on the circuit that i i would choose being an mc rather than being a middle or open any any day mm. of the week but <laughs> um so i Definitely think I feel more comfortable in club sets and MCs. But ironically, and I never thought I would say this, but I prefer doing an hour-long show than doing a club set. Mm. I feel so much more comfortable doing longer, more personal routines. With the caveat, (laughs) with the caveat that the people have chosen to be there because i've done a couple of like edinburgh previews where people will just buy tickets they're like oh i don't know what we're going to but yeah yeah, it's just some previews let's and they turn up and that's really difficult to turn up to a show where there's like a group of you know four pissed up guys from scunthorpe hey let's have a laugh and you're like here's my mental illness or here's about my circumcision or here's about my dad dying or the history of Western philosophy. They're like, who the fuck are you? What's going on? So (laughs) as long as people know what they're getting, I much prefer doing hour long shows. Yeah. It must be interesting as as a storyteller, you need the time to flesh out the the story. So when you're trying to crowbar an excerpt into part of your club set, you know, and and people are coming in to see a night of comedy, they don't know what each extract is going to be. If they know the the, the crux of the matter of what you're going to be talking about, then that's a focused audience are going to pay attention. And you've got the time then to explain the scenario. So it must be a world of difference between uh, an audience coming to hear about Western philosophy to someone who 
suddenly starts throwing out the names of Greek philosophers at somebody. And <laughs> it's like, what, what is on about? Well, that's, that's always kind of who I sort of aspired to be as well. I always sort of really wanted to be someone that could do a club set, but still talk about mental health. And mm. there are some people that do that brilliantly that talk about really challenging topics again yeah. jamali maddox i think is a brilliant example simon brockin is another excellent example of of that and yeah. and to a lesser extent richard herrings and john robbins who, who who actually can do a club set and be bulletproof funny but talk about loneliness mm. or talk about being broke or divorce or whatever and i i am still trying to work on being able to do a club 20 at a weekend but actually still talk about mm. not philosophy. I mean, I mean that, that is pretentious even for me, <laughs> but <laughs> mental health, I think is a good topic to talk about. Just interestingly on how does that work when you've got the people who have come in for your hour and you know, you're, you're 15 minutes in and you go, I've got a finely honed hour and yet I'm starting to lose people's attention now. That's horrendous. Do you have ideas, tricks in your mind to bring it back or do you just have to persevere? You know what? That that was always what I was most scared of, mm. and and I I actually have started to realise that a couple of different things are happening. If that comes to that, so if it has come to that, generally, uh, and it's something that I was really working on this year of actual, uh, again, part of the anxiety. Instead of establishing myself, instead of slowing down and starting, when I get really anxious about gigs, I just want to crack on so people will still be clapping about, hi i'm david i'm here because i'm talking about what's that and they're like whoa what the fuck is I, I whoa this is like a thousand miles a minute so <laughs> if it has got to that 15 minute moment and they're kind of starting to the goodwill is going it's normally <laughs> because i haven't done that and in terms of hints and tips i'm still trying to find the tools in the box to do that something that i'm really experimenting with at the moment is like physically trying to create a break and what i mean by that is sitting down on a chair moving to a different part of uh of the stage but the the go-to with something like that is always and I'm actually trying to train myself out of it because I see it so much. Mm. But your classic one is give me a cheer if. Mm. And um, you know, and 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 that kind of annoys me because especially like in the show that I'm working on at the moment in the history of Western philosophy, you know, you know give me a cheer if you've ever heard of Anaxarchus, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not really going to lift the root. But all you're trying to do there is just re-establish that connection and and that is what you you know in those moments that's what you need to do is re-establish that connection with the audience and go like oh by the way i am listening to you and i can hear that you are not listening that you're not uh, laughing sorry so let's talk about this year's show then uh philosophy i understand some of the topics you've talked about in previous shows why did you want to talk about western philosophy now and how did you come about to write the show you know what? It was it was meant to be a stupid dick about that I thought would flop, but I'm I'm honestly, I, I'm genuinely loving it. I mean, the irony is, like last year's show about dogs, I put so much time, so much work, so much mm. effort into it, and it actually was hit and miss <laughs> at best, more miss than hit. And I think I'm trying to have more fun with stand up at the moment. So the topic came about because I did study philosophy at his uh, at university, mm. and Without a doubt, far and away, people that study philosophy are easily, easily without breaking a sweat, some of the funniest people I have ever, ever met. And I was like, I, I want to try and tap into that. And the problem with that is I started talking to more and more mates. Well, actually over lockdown, I started to talk to a lot of my course mates. Hmm. And we started talking about all of these things. And what kind of made me realize is that philosophy has a really bad rep. People think it is sort of upper middle class white men walking around in cheesecloths and cravats talking about <laughs> things that happened 4,000 years ago. And as the pandemic crawled on, mm -hmm. more and more people started to doubt the uh, existence of COVID, 
a lot of people started to just say that scientists were lying mm. and then you've got the anti-vaxxer movement then there was the whole donald trump insurrection thing where people were turning their noses up at bold facts mm. and it really started to scare me that i was like it worries me that that's more on the right wing but equally on the left wing i do think that we are not completely without blame of certain topics people are being told what to think about them mm. rather than analyzing the arguments around them and going does that make sense to me can i see where they're coming from do i entertain and respect that opinion yeah and so it kind of bloomed out of those two things of chatting to my mates about philosophy and go wasn't that a laugh do you remember that lecture <laughs> when and a genuine fear that these critical thinking skills are dying mm. and moreover moreover that they're only these critical thinking skills are only being given in private schools where people have incredible education and i think that philosophy is absolutely open to everyone it doesn't mean that you have to use long words. It certainly doesn't mean that you have to come from a, a rich family. And it's trying to get a little bit of a foot in the door to whet that appetite to go, you know what? This isn't as pretentious as I thought. And these are actually things that I can use in my day-to-day -day life. Yeah. It's interesting. Again, for me, I saw um, philosophy as a work in progress. Um, I loved it. One of the things that did strike me, however, is that there are a few jokes I noticed, uh, and then obviously a few other people in the in the audience didn't pick up on the reference points, and then that made me then start to think, hang on, how many jokes have I missed? Are there a lot more jokes in this than I realised that there were? <laughs> and not that there weren't plenty of jokes that I was getting, but I sort of think, hang on, now I now feel like I need to write down everything and then sort of check check the reference points. I you see, I see that as a failure of me, and I I, I like I'm trying to train myself out of like commenting on people's laughter i mean i i i always it really annoys me and i hate to say this but you get this a lot in edinburgh when people say about the reviewers of like did you get like uh, is the review come out yeah i got a bad review and it's like oh they didn't get it i'm like no that's your job it's your <laughs> job to commit like you would never turn in an essay at school and get a bad mark and go yeah the teacher didn't get me it's like no 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 it is fundamentally your job to explain yourself to the teacher so <laughs> but equally and and there are a couple of jokes in there that are for nerds and, and i quite <laughs> like that and i again it's this richard herring sort of style thing of acknowledging nerds and there's genuinely one of my favorite jokes was actually given by the brilliant comedian beck hill mm. and it came out of a um a new material night where i was trying to explain about socrates and i was basically trying to rubbish socrates and i started off by saying you know like everyone thinks socrates is you know the big dog but i actually don't think he's that intelligent because of x y and z and she came up to me afterwards and said when you said it, I thought Socrates was the big dog, I just instantly thought, no, that's Cerberus. And I was like, that's such a funny joke. <laughs> but obviously, if you don't have an if you don't have an understanding of Greek mythology, you don't get it. But I I I kind of I do quite like little silly <laughs> jokes like that. So yeah, I get that one in. That was very much the joke that I had in mind when I said that. <laughs> I didn't even write, I would love to take the credit for that. But when she said that, I was like, that's such a nerdy silly stupid joke <laughs> and, and i really the thing that i'm loving the thing that i'm loving about this show uh is is to be able to play around and be silly mm. and have fun because i think i think the problem with the previous show was that i um it was so scripted and it was so honed and i took it so seriously that i didn't really have any fun with it whereas with jokes like that mm. i'm really enjoying scolding the people that do get it rather than the people that don't i think that's quite funny I mean, you nerds you nerds laughing at that um and, and i think that's quite quite nice yeah well happy to be a nerd i get one extra joke <laughs> <laughs> so obviously taking this show to to edinburgh and you've been to edinburgh many times before what's your 
festival experience like? I, you're asking me a really interesting time mm. because before that, I always used to say Edinburgh is my Christmas. I live for Edinburgh, <laughs> and I will be honest. I uh, I've started to realize over. I think stand up can have a real imposter syndrome mm. and a real like it can really mix with your head. And I think one of the things that I'm starting to realize that I loved about Edinburgh was it was the first time, it was the only time of the year that I 100% truly felt like a comedian. And it was the only time of the year that I felt like it wasn't just me doing this mm. stupid career. I was a group of not any people that did it themselves, but people that supported it mm. and loved it and watched it. And there was a community and an enjoyment and an atmosphere. I think Edinburgh and the Fringe hasn't weathered the pandemic well. And I think there have been some certain decisions that have been made at top level mm. that have really exacerbated a divide. I hated Edinburgh last year in a way that I genuinely left that festival thinking, I'm not sure I'm ever going to do this again. Mm. It, it like I genuinely, my mental health hadn't been that bad in a while and my partner had to come up. So as I head into Edinburgh again this year, I will be honest that I am more than a little apprehensive because I want to go and enjoy it mm. and have fun and be silly. And I think that is perhaps the better attitude to have because last year I was going with an old mindset of this is work. You're going up there to do your job. Mm. And I think this year is between me and you almost like my final roll of the dice to kind of be like, can it be fun? Mm. Can it be silly? Can it be a way to help me? Because if it's like it was last year, I, I really genuinely do not think the Edinburgh that we knew of old times is going to survive in, in the coming years, not even decades. Yeah. Um, obviously, you do work in progresses before Edinburgh and festivals like uh, Brighton. Mm. Do you feel like the many, many smaller festivals will usurp the big dog? Sorry, <laughs> of Edinburgh. Well, I think it's it's a it's a fantastic point because to to use an analogy. I, I used to do this thing called VegFest. So a couple of years ago, I did a show all about how I turned vegan. Mm. And there were these two big events called VegFest in Bristol and London. And we're talking seven, eight years ago now. They would pull in over two days. I think it was 30,000, 40,000 people because there weren't vegan products in supermarkets there weren't vegan festivals and a lot of these people felt like freaks and it was their kind of edinburgh fringe of going around to go oh my god there's bodybuilders that are vegans mm. there are boxers that are vegans there are blokes there's women there's a whole vegan trans community a vegan lgbt community whatever it was that there was that thing mm. it kind of gave that brotherhood and I know and have interviewed and talked to the creator. Um, I know him quite well. And over the past eight years, as the rise of veganism has become more mainstream, mm. it's led to kind of almost that death of VegFest because why am I going to pay 15 quid and travel all the way to London or Bristol when I could just nip to Tesco's yeah. and get those sausages? And I think a very similar thing is happening uh, with the fringe, I think the fringe will always endure. I think it really needs to become more affordable for audiences. I think it certainly needs to become more affordable for acts. Mm. I think it really needs to take a long, hard look in terms of things like awards and actually really reconsider who they are putting forward for that. Mm. I think it needs to be open to a lot more people of a variety of classes and I think that smaller fringes like the Brighton Fringe, like the Leicester Comedy Festival, like the Shaftesbury Fringe, like the Wandsworth Fringe, like the Manchester Fringe, all of these different things, I actually think are breaking down those class 
and geography and economic boundaries. Mm. And I think that's a, a good thing. And I, again, I think this is why it's a fantastic time for the free fringe. And yeah. looking at the Edinburgh fringe, there has been a 25% drop in people doing the big four quarter less shows. Yeah. Yet the free festival has, I think has got, 30% more people coming to it. Yeah. And as negative as it all sounds, I, I think that's really exciting that it's going to make shows more accessible. There's going to be more audience that are legitimately seeing this as a proper way of seeing genuinely good comedy mm -hmm. rather than, oh, yeah, it's raining. Do you just want to go and hide <laughs> in a bunker for an hour and not pay for that? Okay, so with a show about philosophy, what about your own philosophies? What lessons have you learned? What philosophies do you now take with you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know what? The biggest philosophy that I'm learning at the moment is that um, I, I don't have answers. Nobody really has answers. <laughs> I, there is There is so much at the moment. I've been so preoccupied and so... Um, worried for so long mm. of trying to do things the right way especially in comedy you listen to these podcasts and people go oh i did this and you're like that's the right way to do it and then people go, no i did it like this and you're like that's the right way to do it and actually i think my sort of philosophy that i'm trying to lean into at the moment and trying to remind myself more than anyone else is no one really has the answers you aren't born with a user manual for life and actually a lot of the time advice can be great and it can be brilliant but it is just advice from one person's perspective that's all advice ever really is mm. and i uh, i think i think that's really i think that's really important to say that we, we're all kind of muddling through life and and a lot of a lot of it is luck yeah. a lot of it can be in the right place at the right time that's not to diminish it at all if anything i was talking to a a, a very um an act that will remain nameless but is doing absolutely brilliant at the moment and it's you know mock the week live at the apollo all of these different tv shows and they are an incredible comic and have worked at it for absolute decades hmm. but even they admit they're like when i got mock the week uh i only got it because someone dropped out and they'd seen me the night before hmm. and they're like a lot of this is luck yeah and 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 i i think that's I don't think that's a bad thing. So I think once you sort of start to remember that, because I see so many comedians and people in other jobs, of course, as well, yeah. driving themselves mad by going, I want to be there, but I'm not. What is it that's holding me back? And that's exactly to go back to that conversation that I had with Robin Morgan. Mm. And I was like, he's bossing it at the moment. And I was like, are you enjoying it? And he just said, you know what, I think whenever I do my taxes, I always look back at last year and I always think, if I could have told last year's me where I'd be now, how would I feel? And that helps build gratitude. And I was like, that's a really lovely way mm. to be. So I'm trying to kind of nurture that gratitude and focus on what I've got rather than what I want. Yeah. Easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see what you you have got then what have been your best and worst gigs so far great question <laughs> um i mean it ironically i i could i feel like i could fill a book with worst uh gigs <laughs> but even like the worst gigs are not always like the ones that you would um think i don't i don't think i've had like one standout absolute shocker of a gig that instantly um comes to mind um i mean there was one the other day well no i'm not, I'm not gonna tell you that one uh, <laughs> there are certainly situations where i could like dealt with things better and you know what like actually this is what it's kind of mundane for me of like shocker gigs are just gigs that i i don't really enjoy 
the the worst gig that I think I've done is I did a gig in Glasgow where they do this gig and it's burlesque dancers for mm. two hours and a comedian for 20 minutes. But when I say burlesque, it's not like burlesque as in like um, very sensitively and suavely done. It, it was literally girls with their nipples out. Like that was, and, and so you've got, a hundred Glaswegians that are as horny as hell. And I don't know why they booked me to be honest, Mark, because like they're, they're these guys that are like as horny as hell. And then a little English guy going on stage. And not only did I die, they tagged me in the photos afterwards and genuinely, and I can show you the photo. There is a picture of someone on the front row who is asleep, who is asleep <laughs> during my set. And like, that is so much worse than any heckle that I have ever, ever got. Um, so I, I think, I think that would probably be my, my most shocking sort of, uh, but in terms of good gigs, it's really weird because it's not actually like normally the gigs that you think, oh, my God, I, I'm going to be so, you know, this is it. This is why I do it. They're ones that really sneak up. And I, I'd say one of my favorite gigs was actually doing Normally Abnormal at the Brighton Fringe in a brilliant room that no longer exists in the Hobgoblin. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was a Saturday. It was, I was so lucky that the show had gained a little bit of traction and I'd actually got people standing up because all of the seats were filled. And I remember feeling so comfortable on stage and very, it's very rare that I ever feel, oh, I've got them in the palm of my hand. And I just remember having a weird, very clear moment going, yeah, this is why I do it. This is, <laughs> and, and that would be my favorite gig. But like, for example, doing the TED Talk, I was just constantly anxious mm. when I was doing that. Whenever any gig is filmed, any pressure gig where you're like, oh my God, I used to go to this comedy club and now I'm doing it, I want to do well. Because you've got that in the back of your mind, mm. I'm never enjoying it. I'm just thinking constantly, how can I do this well? How can I improve it? Yeah. It's the little gigs that really sneak up, that are the ones that are like and most enjoyable, I think. Yeah. Dave, how can we find out about you and all your good works? How can we find out where to come and see you? Bless you. Well, everything's on my website, Dave Chawner, that's C-H-A-W-N-E-R.co.uk. And if you're interested in that comedy course, it's comedyforcoping.com. <laughs> um, and finally, the last question I always ask, Dave, can you sum up comedy in a nutshell? Yes. Comedy in a nutshell for me is good mental health. That is what it is. It is getting out with mates, seeing other people, taking challenging topics, breaking them down, seeing them as silly and non intimidating and enjoying the failures in life. So I find it mental that more people don't talk about good mental health in comedy. But for me, simply put, comedy is the pinnacle of good mental health. Beautiful. Dave, thank you so much. It's been absolutely brilliant talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, mate.